Good morning, church. Can you hear me? Uh, let's go to the Lord and ask him to help us. Lord, we need your help this morning, oh God. Lord, these, these things are too great for us without your Holy Spirit, oh Lord. Lord, the, the fact that a righteous and a holy God could forgive sin, God, is beyond our comprehension. Help us, God, to understand your word. We pray, Lord, that we see wonderful things in your word today, O oh Lord, that your people would see Christ today, that the people that are here that don't know you, God, that they would get a glimpse of your majesty and your glory and your forgiveness, O oh Lord. Help me, God, to rightly divide your truth, to lead your people to a well that will never dry up, O oh Lord. Lord, we need you this morning as ever, O oh God. It's in the holy name of Christ we pray. Amen. <clears throat> the truest despair arises from the depths of our own choices, for it is from that darkness that we come face to face with the consequences of our own actions. That's a quote from Fyodor Dostoevsky, he's a novelist. And I am certain that many of us are intimately acquainted with this feeling. The feeling of being consumed by despair and drowning in the depths of our own sin, our own iniquity, and our own terrible and poor choices. Whenever a person is forced to reckon with the bitter reality of their own transgression, sinking into the depths of their own making, despair can easily take a hold of a person's heart. But family, take heart. The Lord is good. Amen? Even in the depths of our own sin, in the situations of our own making, and in the midst of the despair that we cause ourselves by our own sin, the Lord is good. And the proof of it is this psalm. The Lord composed the song of hope for people who are in despair over their own sinfulness and their own poor choices and their own decisions. So here, if you are here this morning and you find yourself in a place like this, a place of despair and self-inflicted agony, the Lord has composed the song of hope for you here in the 130th Psalm. People of God, I want to urge you this morning together with this psalmist to hope in the Lord for all of the redemption of your iniquities. So our text this morning, Pastor, Red Ed, uh, Pastor Ed read it earlier, Psalm 130. It's part of a collection of 15 songs known as the Songs of Ascents, the Songs of Ascents. And so the, these 15 psalms are specific, specifically grouped together, and they build on one another for the pilgrimage of the march that the Jews would make in their seasonal feasts in Jerusalem, to, or towards Jerusalem. So in the 129th Psalm, this is a psalm about how Israel's ungodly foes and enemies would not prevail against them because the Lord our God is righteous and he is with his people. But that's a problem when we get to Psalm 130 because the God who will ensure 
that our ungodly foes would not prevail against us. The problem is, is that he's righteous and he's with us. So the same problem, or I'm sorry, the, 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 the glorious truth that made him our great protector is now seen as our greatest threat. Because if the righteous Lord is present with us, then by his very nature as being righteous, he must expose and condemn sin. And so that presents us with a major, major problem. Because what we saw in verse 3 was, is that no, no one can stand before him should he mark iniquity. But despite this reality, the people of God are presented with hope in the lyrics of this song. Okay, in the lyrics of this song, we discover that this righteous Lord is not only a God who exposes and condemns sins, but he is also the Lord Yahweh, with whom there is forgiveness, steadfast love, and plentiful redemption. So Psalm 130, it begins with a heartfelt cry from the depths of distress and agony, a desperate plea for mercy. You see that in verses 1 through 2. In verses 3 through 4, we find assurance that there is forgiveness with the Lord. In verses 5 through 6, the psalmist, he encourages us to patiently wait on the Lord and hope in his word. And in the last stanza, verses 7 through 8, the psalm transitions from a personal vow to a collective call assuring everyone, all of the people of God, that hope lies with the Lord. Family, the cry of this psalmist that we hear in Psalm 130 is an invitation to the entire, to all of the people of God, to every one of us. In spite of your sin and iniquity, put your hope in the Lord, because with the Lord, there is steadfast love, there is forgiveness, and there is plentiful redemption. Look with me, I'm in verse 1. Verse 1, the first point is a cry for mercy, a cry for mercy. The psalmist is crying out, out of the depths. This expression, out of the depths, it means more than just feeling anxiety, sadness, or some frustration. He is expressing something that runs far deeper than these feelings, okay? This man is in deep distress and he's in deep agony, and he is crying out of the depths. The depths in the scriptures usually refers to the depths of the sea, but here in this verse, the depths is, is it's being used figuratively to talk about trouble and distress and agony. In Jonah chapter 2, verse 2, after he was thrown overboard, Jonah relates being in the depths of the sea to being in the belly of the grave or the belly of Sheol. When he said, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol, I cried. And you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. This psalmist here in 130 is like Jeremiah in Lamentation 355, who cried out, I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. And this writer is also like the writer of the 69th Psalm who said in verses 1 and 2 of the 69th Psalm, Save me, O God, from the, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire, 
where there is no foothold, I have come into the deep waters and the floods sweep over me. The writer of this 130th Psalm is in a sea of despair, a sea of agony, and he is drowning. To make matters worse, the despair he feels is his own fault. He did it himself. Okay, so look at verse 3. It says that the writer, here the writer is talking about iniquity. So somehow, not exactly, but we know that his despair is on account of his own sin and his own iniquity. Right? So added to the despair, added to the agony, added to the stress is guilt. Right? So the psalmist is he's overwhelmed. He's drowning in the sea of distress, in the sea of trouble, and it's caused by his own sin and his own, and his own iniquity and family. Listen, it's one thing to be suffering in the distress. It's another thing when it's your own fault. That's a whole nother animal in and of itself. Okay? Something else that's interesting about uh, the psalmist's plea in, for mercy, look at verse 3 again. It says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquity... Who could stand? So if you look closely here at verse 3, you're going to notice something. If you, if you got a good translation, it's going to say this. So the first time you see the word, O oh Lord, it's in all caps. Second time you see it, it's only the Lord, the next is, is capitalized, right? So what's happening is, is that the psalmist is alternating between God's personal covenant name, Yahweh, right? And then his title as sovereign Lord. So when he's crying out, he's switching back and forth between Yahweh, the great I am, and the sovereign master. He's switching back and forth. He does this three times in this psalm. He does it in verses one and two, and then you see it again in three. Verse three, he does it. Then he does it again in verse five and six, and then in seven, he repeats the name Yahweh, Yahweh, twice, right? So in doing this, what the psalmist is doing is he's, a focus, he's focusing our attention on two realities. First, that God is the covenant-keeping, fiercely loyal God of Israel, right? And second, that he's God, sovereign ruler over everything, right? So, both of these realities no doubt add to his despair and his guilt, right? Because, because the Lord is sovereign over everything, because he's master over everything, you should obey him, and because you haven't, you're guilty, right? He's your creator, therefore sovereign over you, and you should obey him. Secondly, the, the psalmist also uses... Yahweh, the personal covenant name of God, which means he knows him. He knows this God, right? So for the psalmist, God is not just some distant theoretical concept. The psalmist knows Yahweh. He knows that he's fiercely loyal. He knows that he's covenant keeping. He knows that he's a God who forgives. He knows that he's a God who's merciful. He knows this about him. He knows, the psalmist knows, family. The psalmist knows that God redeemed Israel from slavery in Egypt. The psalmist knows that Yahweh is a God who redeemed the people from exile in Babylon. The psalmist knows this God. He knows that God, what God has done for him. He knows what God has done for his people. 
He knows how faithful God has always been to his promises. He knows how much Yahweh has blessed him. He knows this God. So this fact further explains why the psalmist is in so much distress and so much agony, because he realizes that his sin is against his God, Yahweh. The psalmist is aware that 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 the Lord is both sovereign over him and faithful to him, right? So for the psalmist, his iniquity, his sin not, is not only causing him distress simply because he disobeyed. He's under so much distress and sorrow because he recognizes he sinned against somebody who is for him. He sinned against Yahweh, the one who was, who is, and who will be for him. Okay? We're still looking at verse number three. I'm going to read it again. It says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? So the psalmist, he's asking a rhetorical question, to which the answer is obviously nobody. If he should mark sin, where are the little children at? Little children, if your mom asks you, do you want me to come over there and spank you, what do you always say? No. Right? Rhetorical questions are always no. Listen, he's saying, if anyone, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Answer, no one. Nobody could stand. Right? So he realizes, he recognizes, if God dealt with sinners according to what they deserved, all of us would fall. None of us could stand. He recognizes this. So when God marks iniquity, what that means is that he's holding individuals accountable for their sins and counting it against them, counting their sins against them. So consequently, if God does that, every one of us would face judgment because we all bear guilt, making it impossible for any of us, any of us to stand before him. So this question from the psalmist echoes a question that has been posed by other prophets throughout The Bible throughout redemptive history, Nahum, in chapter 1, verse 6, he asked this question, who could stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? Malachi, chapter 3, verse 2, asked a similar question, but who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? And even in Ezra, chapter 9, verse 15, it's not explicitly a question, but it emphasizes the same idea. Behold, we are before you, Lord, in our guilt, for no one can stand before you because of this. And I want you to notice something here, family. Universal guilt does not alleviate his despair or relieve his distress. It does not relieve his distress. So when Adam and Eve fell, listen, I need you to consider something here. When Adam and Eve fell, right? And they listened to the hiss of the serpent. And they sinned against God. Shame washed over them. Because of their sin, they became aware of their nakedness. And they attempted to cover up their shame with fig leaves. So I ask you, how often do you and I do the same thing? Right? When somebody that you know or somebody that you love is crushed and in distress and under the weight of their sin and their guilt 
and their terrible choices in decision-making, how many times have you heard somebody try to make them feel better by offering them their own type of fig leaves? And the way that we do this is we say, we point them to the fact that, well, you're not the only one that has committed this sin. You did the same. Sister such and such did the same thing. Right? They'll even we'll quote Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fallen the short of the glory of God. Now, that's not misinterpreting the text, but it's criminally missing the point. Okay? The fact that everybody is guilty with, when you feel like this, when you're in distress and dis, in despair and agony over the sin that you committed and the, and, the, and the havoc that you've wreaked in your own life and the life of the people around you, the fact that somebody else did it is not helping. Right? Universal guilt doesn't make the situation better. It only makes it hopeless. That, you turn to Isaiah then. Remember Isaiah chapter 6? Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. And I am in the midst of a people with unclean lips. Universal guilt don't help. It doesn't diminish my guilt. It does not alleviate the remorse or the guilt that I feel because of the loss that I've incurred because of my sinful choices and decisions. So, parents, consider the weight that you bear and, and, and how distressing it could be when you failed to raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And then that failure comes around, those chickens come home to roost, they negatively affect your adult children right now. Knowing that other parents did the same thing don't lessen the burden. That don't help. If your sins crushed your a marriage, a, a relationship, a friendship, you lost a job, whatever, the knowledge that your neighbor did the same thing or committed some similar sin, it's not going to restore that relationship. That's not coming back. That's not helping. It may superficially, it might re re release a bit of pressure, but the weight of all of that is going to stay on you. Universal guilt does not help. Don't help people like that. So the psalmist is struggling. The psalmist is struggling. He's drowning in a sea of despair that he created for himself, and humanly speaking, there is no way out of it. But the psalmist knows Yahweh, Israel's covenant Lord, the Lord who delivered the people out of slavery in Egypt, the Lord who delivered the people out of exile in Babylon, and the Lord who delivered you and me out of the slavery of our sin. He knows the Lord. The same Lord that Isaiah asked this in, 50, in Isaiah 51.10, he said, listen to this. Was it not the Lord, was it not you, Lord, who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? I didn't read that. I obviously didn't read that right. Y'all supposed to be shouting. Listen. <laughs> was it not you, Lord? who dried up the sea. The waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea away for the redeemed. Obviously, I'm not reading my Bible right. <laughs> Clearly not, right? When you and I were in the depths 
there was only one person who could help us. The only, only the Lord, only Yahweh, the master of the deeps, can help you when you're in it. That's why from the very beginning of this psalm, it's directed to Yahweh. From the very beginning in verse 1. Because this psalmist knows that only the Lord is, help, is capable of helping him with his guilt and his remorse and his distress. So, knowing Yahweh is his only hope, he pleads to Yahweh for mercy. Look at verse 2. He says, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to uh, the voice of my pleas for mercy. He is begging the Lord to pay attention to his prayers, to not ignore or to turn away from his plea. This man is desperate for God to hear him. And he wants his feelings of desperation and despair to go away. And I submit to you, family, until we, you and I, find ourselves in a similar situation, you'll never cry out to God as intensely as this psalmist does. Until you grasp the depth, the ugliness, and the vileness of your own sin experience the distress, the frustration, and the agony that it's going to cause, you will never sincerely cry out to God for him to help you and for him to save you. The psalmist understands there's nowhere else for him to go. He understands this. Imagine yourself being trapped in a pit, right? You're trapped in a pit. You're unable to climb out. You only got one resource left. You just got to shout for help in hope that somebody can hear you cry and extend a hand to pull you out of the pit. For those of us that are here today, you trapped in this pit of despair, there was a divine hand that has already reached down to try to pull you out. And you reaching for that hand in faith is the same as this psalmist cry. The Lord has stretched out his arm, family. He has offered us forgiveness and mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ. And by his own arm, he has saved us. Amen? Only when a person is assured that forgiveness is possible can their cry of despair be transformed into a song of hope. Okay? So the belief that the Lord, with the Lord there is forgiveness provides relief for people in despair, in this kind of despair. So without the assurance of forgiveness, without knowing for certain that forgiveness is with the Lord, this psalmist's cry would only echo back to him and mock him. And his despair would increase, and it would get worse, and it would just sink him down into even deeper deaths. But that's not the case here, family. Right? Because verse 4 says, quite plainly, but with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. So this is a grand turning point of this psalm. With you, there is forgiveness. And this word here, translated forgiveness in verse 4, it's a unique word. It's not the typical word that the Old Testament uses for forgiveness. There are only two other passages that use this word. That would be Nehemiah 9, 16 through 19. Nehemiah 9, 16 through 19. And the other one is Daniel 9, 9. I want you to listen to how they talk about forgiveness in these two verses. 
Nehemiah 9.16 says this, But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. For we have rebelled against, I'm sorry, and it did not forsake them. Abounding in steadfast love, it did not forsake them. And then the second one is Daniel 9.9. Daniel 9.9, it says this, To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. So this word here literally means uh, cutting off or cut off. And the idea is that when God forgives iniquity or when the Lord forgives sin, he mercifully cuts it off the way a surgeon would cut off a cancerous tumor and take it out of the body. Shout out to Albert. <laughs> right? Another remarkable aspect of this passage is how the psalm sings about forgiveness. I want you to listen to this. So when, the, when he says, but with you there is forgiveness, that's a noun, not a verb. Right? He's not saying that the Lord forgives. He's saying that with the Lord there is forgiveness, right? And then he declares that forgiveness is with Yahweh, right? So in other words, forgiveness is linked together with Yahweh. It's inseparably joined or united with the Lord. So wherever the Lord is present, forgiveness is going to follow. Because forgiveness accompanies him. Wherever the Lord is, forgiveness is there. Make sense to you? So God's character is defined by his boundless capacity to forgive and show immeasurable grace and mercy. That makes sense to you? Immeasurable grace and mercy. Well, why is that? Great question. Because it's linked together with him. It's a part of his character. So God is infinite. Amen? So if he's infinite, guess what else is infinite? Forgiveness. See that? So when we say God is infinite, he's not bound by time or space. Right? So because he's boundless, forgiveness is boundless. Right? One commentator said it like this. He says, the character of God is neither bent against us nor neutral in God's justice and righteousness, but it is bent towards us in forgiveness, in grace, and in mercy. All right, family, you need, we need this truth pressed deep all the way down in our hearts and souls. Right? The Lord's forgiveness is not simply an act, a simple act or an occasional gesture. Right? It is an inseparable part of who he is. God is omnipresent. His forgiveness is ever-present. So that means 
no matter what you have done, where you have been, and how far you strayed away from him, forgiveness is readily available if you come to him. Y'all not shouting enough. Listen, the Lord clearly demonstrated to us that his forgiveness is boundless, right? He sent his beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ, while we were enemies. There was hostility in our heart toward the Lord, the Bible says. Colossians chapter 1 says that, I'm sorry, Colossians chapter 2 says that he saved us when we had enmity and hostility in our heart toward him, right? So, don't make the mistake of thinking, oh, yeah, so God is angry at sinners, so. No, 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 no. You didn't like him very much either. And the proof of it is, is that you sinned against him. Right? So there was mutual beef between the two of y'all. Okay? And he saved you while you were hostile against him. Right? So what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? He did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. How then will he not also graciously give us all things? It is the height of, I'm sorry, it is a complete lack of common sense for you to think that the Lord would give you his son and then withhold all every other good thing. That, that's just not, that don't make sense. I'm going to give you the best, but I'm not going to give you this other stuff. I'll give my son a steak, but I won't give him a hot dog. <laughs> Listen, there is forgiveness with the Lord. It's readily available because the Lord is for his people. Amen? So the fact that there is forgiveness with the Lord, what it's supposed to do is supposed to transform us. Suppose it transform us like it transformed this psalmist. So when the psalmist, when the Lord, I'm sorry, when the Lord lifted the psalmist's soul out of the depths of sin and despair and agony through this forgiveness that he recognizes with the Lord, what it did was, in the second half of verse 4, what it did was is it instilled a deep sense of fear and reverence within the psalmist. Right? So verse 4 reveals the great purpose of, of forgiveness. It's a great purpose of forgiveness, but with you there is forgiveness that, that's a purpose statement, that you may be feared, that you may be feared. Okay, family, we serve Yahweh the Lord, whose very nature is marked by forgiveness. This fact should put into your heart a deep sense of reverence for him. So, you got questions. How does God's forgiveness lead to God being revered? So we read earlier in this psalm that unless God forgives, nobody can stand and everybody will be judged and found guilty. But with God, there is forgiveness. And he has forgiven anybody who believe and trust in him. And then the NIV translates verse 4 like this. But with you there is forgiveness so that we can with reverence serve you. Right? So God's forgiveness leads us to this godly wonder, gratitude, praise, and reverent service for such, for such a wonderful gift that he has given to people like us. 
And this fear, this fear is not, it's not, you shouldn't be thinking terror or dread. You should be thinking loving, reverential fear. Okay? That bring, because it's, it's going, and it should bring you into alignment with God's will because you know he's for you. So when you believe that forgiveness and mercy and kindness and, and, and long-suffering and all of these things, and when you believe that these things are, are things that mark the character of God, then you'll view his commandments, his restrictions, and his warnings full of the same mercy, forgiveness, long-suffering, and kindness. And you will obey them because you know he's not just trying to withhold some good thing from you. It's because he's telling you don't touch that because he loves you. And then you won't see his commandments as a burden. He'd be like, he's only telling me not to touch this because he, don't want, he, doesn't, he doesn't want me destroyed. <sighs> Listen, the purpose of God's forgiveness is not solely to alleviate, to pull you out of this despair. That's not the only purpose, okay? It's to transform us, transform us into men and to women who are fit for God's service, who fear the Lord, okay? So this is David's plea in Psalm 51. In Psalm 51, verses uh, 13 and 14, it, it, it kind of encapsulates this whole truth. He said, he, remember, uh, this is after Nathan confronts him. Right? And so he writes this psalm after he's confronted about his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. Right? And he said he implores God to not hold his sin against him, promising that if you forgive me, God, I will teach transgressors about your ways. He's like, Lord, please forgive me. I'll be an evangelist. That's what he's saying. David asked God to deliver him from his guilt so that he can joyfully proclaim God's goodness and righteousness to other people. That's why the Lord forgives you. He saved you so that you will go home to your house and scream from the rooftops that God is good. That's what he saved you for. That's why he forgave you. So the psalmist's conviction that there is forgiveness with the Lord is so strong that he goes on to declare in verse 5, I will wait for the Lord, or I wait for the Lord. My soul waits for the Lord, and in his word I hope. So he knows God is full of forgiveness and mercy, so he waits. He waits for him. He knows. He's certain. He's sure. And so, again, depending on which translation you're reading, it might read a little slightly differently, but the original text may simply read, My soul is towards Yahweh. My soul is towards Yahweh. So the point the psalmist is trying to convey is a complete turning to the, of his whole person to God. When he says my soul waits, he's talking about his entire being. A complete, undivided commitment, wholehearted dedication, not some half-hearted, partial, 25-cent uh, commitment. Okay. With his soul, he vows to wait on the Lord, in verse 5, and put and place his hope in his word. You see that in verse 6. I'm, I'm sorry, that's the second half of verse 5. It's not verse 6. Second half of verse 5. So, what does that mean when he vows to wait for the Lord? What does this mean? He is vowing to, to 
be content and have a confident expectation, right? So the word wait suggests of an anticipation of something that has yet to come or something that is going to be fulfilled in the future. So you're asking, is the, what is the psalmist waiting on specifically? Or better yet, is he waiting on something specific? Yes, he is. He is waiting on something specific. He's waiting on the Lord. He's waiting on Yahweh himself. He's not after something else. See, some people have been, some people have, have a misunderstanding. Okay? Somebody lied to you and told you that when you become a Christian, all of your problems are going to be fixed. That's not necessarily true. Your biggest problem will get fixed. It's a, very, it's a real possibility some of your problems might get worse. <laughs> right? So what he's, he's not at, God is not a means to another end for him. God is the goal. Yahweh is the reward. So he's waiting on the Lord. And he's doing this with his whole being turned towards Yahweh. He makes this solemn commitment to wait on him. And when he mentions this, he's waiting or he will hope in his word. He's likely referring to a promise or some assurance from God. So why is this emphasis on waiting and hoping in God's word important to the overall meaning of this psalm? Because waiting on the Lord is the response of those who are certain that there is forgiveness with Yahweh. You wait. It's the natural response of those who are looking for him. And so they place their trust in the Lord and eagerly await for him to fulfill all of his promises. Right? So you got another follow-up question. What is this waiting for the Lord supposed to look like? What is this supposed to look like? Look at verse 6. It says, My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen in the morning. More than watchmen in the morning. So, so what the psalmist is doing here, he's drawing a comparison between his waiting and the anticipation of a like a city guard or a century would wait for the first rays of sunlight. So, and he repeats the line for emphasis. So a watchman, he's a guard who stands on duty throughout the night on a city wall. This task is solitary, it's difficult. At times it can be dangerous. As these men would peer out into the night, into the darkness and vigilantly watch for any signs of trouble. They eagerly anticipate the arriving of the sun, of the morning, so that they can return home to safety and much-needed rest. And in the same way, in the same way, the psalmist is eagerly awaiting on the Lord and his promises to come to pass. So just as this watchman yearns for the sunlight to bring an end to the night's duties, the psalmist is eagerly waiting for the Lord to fulfill his promises. We're in verse 7, still in verse 7. I'm sorry, we're in verse 7. 
And if you look at verse 7, it says, O hope, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, with him there is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. So here you see this. In the beginning of the psalm, you saw this personal pronoun, I will cry, or I cry to you out of the depths and hear my plea for mercy, right? So he goes from these personal pronouns in the previous stanzas, and it's replaced with references to Israel. So it's transforming his prayer from a personal prayer and a personal plea to a corporate call, okay? So in other words, this writer of this song, he goes from psalmist to evangelist, okay? He goes from psalmist to evangelist. He calls out to Israel to share in the same hope that he has so that they can share in the same forgiveness that he has received from God. So earlier when the psalmist, when he was in the depths, when he was in agony and he was in distress, he was alone. He was by himself. He felt as if nobody, he had no one else that he could call on but the Lord Yahweh. That's because unconfessed sin isolates you. Isolation is the devil's playground, right? But the knowledge of God's forgiveness unites you with other people. It unites you with other people who have received it, and it, it impels you to go out and tell other people that don't have it, right? Whoever has known that with Yahweh there is forgiveness, you are going to be compelled to invite other people how they can receive the same thing, right? I mean, this is not a difficult concept. Every time you go to a nice restaurant or see a good movie, what is the first thing that you do? What you do last night? Oh, man, let me tell you about where I ate last night. When you experience something like that, you cannot but help to tell other people about it. So simply put, anyone who has experienced the Lord's forgiveness is driven by it to tell other people where they can get it. Then look at the second half of verse 7. Second half of verse 7. The psalmist, he gives two reasons, two reasons why all the people, why all of Israel should hope in the Lord. He says, oh, Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love and with him plentiful redemption. So the psalmist explains, he's explaining here why all Israel should hope in the Lord by repeating a, a, a phrase that is put together the same way as the phrase in verse 4 when he said, with the Lord there is forgiveness. But this time he exchanges the word forgiveness with the phrase steadfast love. And then he repeats the expression again a second time, and the second time he exchanges, instead of saying forgiveness, he says plentiful redemption. So the Lord's steadfast love is his covenant faithfulness. It's his loyal love. It's the love, it's the Lord's love that would never give up on his bride. This word, steadfast love, is the Hebrew word hesed. It's the kind of love that Hosea had for his wife even when she was unfaithful in Hosea chapters 1, 2, and 3. It's the kind of love 
that the father had for the prodigal son, his rebellious prodigal son, and he kept waiting and watching for him to return. And it's the kind of love that will never leave you, never forsake you, and will be with you to the end of the age. Second reason that the psalmist gives for why you should hope in Yahweh is that with him there's plentiful redemption. So to redeem is to ransom. It's to ransom. So in Israel, a slave could be set free if someone paid the ransom price. So this psalm is declaring that the Lord himself will redeem Israel and set them free. But look at the way he describes this redemption. He says it's plentiful. He says it's plentiful. Now, that word, that word is interpreted in, in the Old Testament, multiplied, numerous, copious, thorough, abundant, many, more, much, a lot. A lot. This is why we can sing our sins they are many, his mercy is more. Because the Lord offers us plentiful redemption. And if you're being honest with yourself, you know that's what you need. I also want you to notice something else. He says, just like he said in verse 4, that forgiveness is with the Lord. He also says that he, he so what this song is doing here, he, he, he's, it presents us with three fundamental characteristics of God. Three fundamental characteristics of God. In verse 4, with him there is forgiveness. In verse 7, with him there is steadfast love. And again in verse 7, with him there is plentiful redemption. So, in other words, forgiveness, steadfast love, and plentiful redemption are put forward as God's, as God's accomplices right? They're close friends with the Lord. So where you see the Lord, you see forgiveness, steadfast love, and redemption. If the Lord show up in the room, forgiveness, steadfast love, and redemption follow, right? That's because steadfast love is the well that forgiveness is drawn out of and our redemption is the result of the forgiveness. So when you get one, you get the whole package, right? So whatever you think about the God of the Bible, whatever you think about him, these three concepts are supposed to come to, come to your mind at the same time. Amen? Amen. So if you, think all God, if you think about God and all you think is God sending people to hell, you're not reading this right. Okay? If you're a believer and all you think is I'm just a no good, dirty, rotten, stinking sinner. And if I don't get this together, God's going to banish me to hell. You don't understand the God of the Bible. You did not get that from the scriptures. I don't know where you got that from, but you did not get that from the Bible. The Lord is ready to forgive. Because he is faithful to his promises. He is the great redeemer. So you should put all your hope in him 
for the forgiveness of your iniquities. Right? So we're looking at verse 8. He says, he will redeem, the Bible says, he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. The psalmist has a strong confidence that the Lord will redeem his people from all iniquity, from every sin, every sin, right? He will comprehensively redeem Israel, comprehensively redeem Israel. When you go to the bank and you look at your statement and they tell you I got $197.18 and you say I want to clean out my account, they better give you every dime or you're going to turn tables over in that place, right? Okay, so this is how you should be thinking about this. Every sin, every sin, every single one, past, present, and future, there's not a single sin, not a single sin, not a single sin that he cannot cover. Not a single sin that he cannot, if you, if you aborted your baby, he could forgive that. If you was the man who paid for the abortion, he could forgive that. If you was the grandmama who drove the car down there, you could, he could forgive that. If you did drugs, if you did whatever you did, whatever, if you self-righteous, I don't know what, he could forgive all of that. He, all of it, every single one. The sins that you haven't even done yet, he forgave those if you in Christ. That's, that's how we can put up with each other. Because all of the sins, every sin you've ever committed, the Lord has redeemed you from those if you are in him. Every single one. But I need to give you a caveat. If you hear that and you think I could go sin some more, you're not a Christian. You don't love Jesus. That's another sermon Pastor Ed going to have to preach one day. <laughs> right? So the Lord will comprehensively redeem Israel. This liberation, this redemption, it's not only a liberation from guilt, it's a liberation from the entire framework of sin. The entire framework of sin. So Israel will be free from the guilt of their iniquity, the penalty of their iniquity, the power of their iniquity, and one day in the future, the presence of it. It's going to be, all sin is going to be gone. So he is calling these people the psalmist is calling these people to, like him, hope in God's word and wait on the Lord like the watchmen wait in the morning. Wait for the morning because the Lord will redeem. Family, if you, were, if you and I, for you and I, the sun has risen. The morning has come and redemption is nigh. Jesus Christ has risen out of the grave. The Lord Jesus Christ is God's final word. And Christ is the word that the psalmist put his hope in. And he has come. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. And in Matthew 1:21, before Jesus was born, the angel told Joseph, she will bear a son. She shall, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And since all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, they are now justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice. And in him we have redemption. Through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. 
So now, I know some of y'all don't believe me. Some of y'all don't believe me, but I just need you to reason with me for a moment, okay? If you don't believe that God is the only one that's capable of forgiving you, if you don't believe that he's ready to forgive, and with him there is forgiveness, plentiful redemption, if you don't believe these things, where else you gonna go? Where are you going? How are you gonna quiet down your conscience if you don't come to him? What you gonna do? What you gonna do? You gonna go get another, have another sexual experience? You gonna go get drunk again? What you gonna do? It didn't work the last time. Why would you think it's gonna work this time? Since when does, if you guilty for sin, since when does doing more sin help? Right? So tell me, how are you going to fix this problem? How are you going to fix this despair? How are you going to fix this guilt? How are you going to fix it? And then there's another group of us in here that don't believe me for a different reason. It's because you're self-righteous. So you won't run to these explicit sins, right? But what you'll do in, in order to quiet down your conscience, because you're too sanctified and holy to do this kind of stuff, okay, what you'll do is, You'll choose denial and refuse that you have ever even really committed any sins at all. And then you'll, or some of you, you'll rationalize your sin. You might admit that you're guilty, right? You'll admit that you're guilty, but so is everybody else, so it's not that bad. Or you'll try to rationalize it and say, it's not my fault. It was, it was my spouse. It was the government. It was my parents. You'll even blame God. It was the woman or the man that you gave me. Some people commit sin and because the outcome was good, they'll say it wasn't sin. They'll say it wasn't sin. I know I wasn't supposed to tell that lie. I know I wasn't supposed to go take, get that abortion. I know I wasn't supposed to do that. But the outcome was good, so it wasn't that bad. All that's just rationalization and denial and all that other stuff. You don't have to do that. You don't have to play that game. The Lord is ready to forgive any kind of sin, and you can be free of your guilt if you just come to Jesus, right? I'm urging you, put your hope in him. That guilt is going to crush you. It's going... People commit suicide because of guilt. But you don't have to hold on to that. Come to Christ. He's ready and willing to forgive you if you would just confess and repent. Right? There is full freedom in Jesus. Full freedom. Plentiful redemption in Christ. His love is steadfast. His love is eternal. His mercy is everlasting. Come to Jesus. He's ready and available if you would just come to him. Don't turn away. Today is the day of salvation. Do not harden your heart today. If the Lord is calling you today, come to him today. Amen? Lord, help us, God. Help us, God, to, help us, God, to not turn away from you. Press these truths on our heart, Lord, that you are full of forgiveness, that you are full of 
mercy and kindness, Lord. There's plentiful redemption with you, and you will redeem us from all of our sins, O Lord. Help us, God. Help us, O Lord. It's in Christ's holy name we pray. Amen. And yet God's grace is greater because Christ is greater. And this is this reality, right? That God is so gracious. He sees us in its entirety, and he loves us first and maintains that love. Right? He doesn't sit there and go, I have to put up with this one now. He loves. Whether we have a good day or bad day. You start to think about the way God treats us and how he leads us and how he loves us. And yet never does he say, hey, you can sit on the throne. And all that time, what you start to realize is God's disposition to us is grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. I would be sick of myself by 9 a.m. if I could see myself the way God sees me. I'd probably be sick of myself five minutes after waking up. But God, that's not how he sees. He who knows all, who sees all, is still loving, generous, kind, and merciful. And then we are to take that grace and we are to show it to other people. Because that's the kingdom of heaven is actually a kingdom of landowners. And we're called to be like those landowners. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord. Your grace is great. It is sweet. Uh, Father, even as we sang, our sins there are many, but your mercy is more. And Lord, we are so thankful for your grace and your mercy, your love, your kindness. Thank you for the son who died in our place. Lord, I pray that we never forget how great your son is. I pray that we would spend more time thinking about the greatness and the glory of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that if anybody thinks that their sins are greater than your son, that they would be, that your spirit would instruct them even now, Lord, that Jesus Christ is greater than our sin and to trust his work on the cross for it is sufficient and it paid for our sins and provides us life. May we respond in faith. We love you and it's in your sons and we pray. Amen.